the experience seeks to start with something we know and extrapolate from it. Through this play on scale and images, the usual becomes the improbable. This experience seeks to go beyond the myth, beyond the images, to venture into the work itself. And here I was thinking I was just shelling out $50 for a fancy carnival ride. Welcome to Waywards, where we take a few sidelong looks at literature to wonder where we ought to go. I'm Steve Chisnell, and this week we're immersing ourselves beyond Van Gogh. Is it art? Is it Van Gogh? Is it an entertainment? A distraction? Is it perhaps even education? We're going to talk about immersive Van Gogh, the increasingly global experience of art meeting digital projection. I'll say right away on the side that I'm going to pronounce his name Van Gogh. It's the American English pronunciation. Uh, I'm not adequately practiced in my Dutch, where Van Gogh would be perhaps a little, or Van Gogh would be a little more accurate. Undoubtedly, you've seen or heard about these exhibits already. They often don't take place anywhere near a museum. You pay anywhere between 25 and 90 U.S. dollars for a single ticket for maybe an hour of immersion into digital sound and image. I've offered a video trailer of one of the shows on our website. And of course, the music behind me is from one of these programs as well, recorded while I was there. Maybe it'll help you feel like you're in the experience yourself a bit. I have to say, they did not come without controversy. Reviews about them have been all over the place. One YouTuber described the experience as being at fireworks, which makes sense. For 11 minutes of video, all she could manage to say was, Oh, wow. But a lot of other views were far less complimentary. One reviewer said, I did not feel I was in his paintings as much as I felt I was in the middle of the biggest Van Gogh coffee table book ever. Or, I feel more like I got the fancy version of the Shrek 4D ride at Universal Studios. Predictable and tedious. Diluted, digestible, animated version of his Wikipedia page. The immersive experience has as much to do with art as Disney's The Mighty Ducks did with hockey, a cartoon version, mostly for children. The software developers can't leave well enough alone. The incessant gyrating nauseated me. The audience spends its time filming themselves in faux, profound contemplation. Industrial spaces are used incongruous with Van Gogh art, bumpy walls, pipes. The viewer's imagination is replaced. My faux table had a skull, a bottle, and an absinthe spoon but they were all fastened down. That says it all for this experience. You get the bottle, but not the booze. The facts, but not much of the feeling. It felt like a maniacal and way too long TikTok video. Where's the virtual reality Vincent we've been waiting for, resurrected to rant about the painter's mission, or the animatronic Vincent painting furiously in the fields? These exhibits are designed to create crowd-pleasing versions of an artist's existence who didn't sell any work in his lifetime. There's an irony to seeing an artist whose work didn't have that kind of economic value be turned into a tourist attraction. The social media has praised this exhibit for the past couple of years, and most of the reviews that have been written in journalism have been far more insulting. Why? Is it some purist elitism that's at work here? Or is there something more serious going on? Should we be concerned about an exhibit like this? This much is true. 
Big Van Gogh has emerged as a multi-million dollar live event opportunity, perhaps one of the true entertainment industry success stories of the pandemic era. It was number one on Ticketmaster sales for a while. For participants, it costs as much as four to ten times as much as a real museum where you could see the actual art. Somewhere it's a cross between social distancing, social media, and a Netflix stream. It worked well during the pandemic. Some of the exhibits added smells, VR, coloring books, whichever one you consider it going to, and there are at least five different companies simultaneously doing Van Gogh immersion experiences around the world. Everyone is designed to be photographed. It's encouraged to be photographed and recorded and posted on your social media. The one I attended suggested that it understood the challenge in communicating Van Gogh. And it made a parallel between that challenge giving Van Gogh to us as viewers, and between Van Gogh's ability to communicate with his painting. Is that a fair analogy? We've got some big questions to address, and I want to forecast what they'll be for us. The first is, does immersive Van Gogh enlighten and educate through some new genre of art? Or is it a dangerous, profit-mongering exploitation which keeps us in ignorance? How should one understand or read a painting anyway? Does it really matter that we're seeing it digitally or not? And finally, is this the path for the future and for education? Let's find out. Digging up some critics. So let's start by looking at the worst side of this immersive exhibit, all the insults and concerns and and claims against it, and there are many. I think it's safe to say that an immersive exhibit of Van Gogh, the one like the ones we're seeing, was clearly beyond Van Gogh's intention. Obviously, the paintings which stretch onto floors and ceilings and move about and surround uh, people with, with an abundance of music is not what Van Gogh created. He created small paintings, most of them very small, that were framed, placed on walls, hung as still life. One of the programs infamously shows Van Gogh's signature animated at the end, as if he signed off on the show. It's a perfect ending, a forgery of his signature, obviously, to demonstrate his authorization of a work he never intended. There's a lot to hate about a show like this if you're a purist, if you think that the best way and the only way to see Van Gogh's paintings is to look directly at Van Gogh's paintings. That's a fair claim. If those are the choices, to look at Van Gogh's painting for real or to see some facsimile of it, that is a fair claim of difference. The experience is different. But, to be fair, most of us in the world have not seen Van Gogh's paintings directly nor are we likely to, not only because we don't typically go to a museum, but many of his museums and his works are not available to us for a variety of reasons. And yet, many people, most of the world, has probably seen a Van Gogh painting. Why? Because it has been reproduced. Starry Night is on coffee mugs and umbrellas and t-shirts. His Self-portraits are found everywhere in reproductions. We have movie versions of his works. So the cat is already out of the bag in terms of reproductions or facsimiles of Van Gogh. But it is fair to say Van Gogh did not anticipate Starry Night being sold on a coffee mug. If that's as far as our objection can go, though, that argument is a little late. Perhaps more seriously is that exhibits like this, especially if they are to be done at museums, will displace the real thing. There is a museum in Indiana that has permanently replaced an entire floor of contemporary art with 150 or more digital projectors to show Van Gogh like this. What happened to all those other artists? Where did their works go? And is there a problem with clearing out galleries of art 
in order to have an exhibit like this. When a museum makes a decision to remove some artists in order to make room for such an enormous display as this technological one, which artists will be chosen and why? Do we get rid of the ones who are of lower quality or lower popularity? Museums are making hard choices about what will draw people in. I offer you two immersive exhibits then, one of Van Gogh and one of Camille Pissarro. Which do you attend and which do you spend top dollar on? The profit-making challenge facing museums is not a small one. And it's easy to suggest that many who are struggling in the art world, artists who might be considered in the minority, those outside the Western canon and tradition, for instance, might easily be excluded in order to make way for the big names that we've come to know. This is part of the power narrative that we've seen before, and it inhabits the art world in a major way. On the other hand, if the museum does not offer the exhibit at all, how many people have gone to see Van Gogh in a museum in this past two years, and how many have gone and still will go to immersive Van Gogh? The kind of thing that immersive Van Gogh does is at least similar to what museums do. A struggling museum might argue that selling Starry Night umbrellas is a core gift shop function, but businesses that do immersive Van Gogh, which might be relatively harmless on their own, do represent a profit-making threat to museums that may not be doing well. An installation of something like this inside a museum starts to challenge the mission of the museum in certain aspects. And in fact, installation is something we're going to talk about in a few moments. Museums are already struggling. How many choices do they have when confronted with an immersive Van Gogh exhibit like this? Resist or join? Hello, Derrida. This raises, of course, a question of presence and absence. Where is the work? If we claim that the painting is the signified, the object which we must see in its physical manifestation... What are we claiming? That the paint itself is the meaning of the work? That the paint itself forms part of the work's meaning? Notice how this is a question different from, say, reading poetry. No one really argues that the meaning of the work is in the ink or choice of paper. Well, there may be a few printing companies, but... In much of the rest of the art world, apart from literature, perhaps the material, the form, the medium, is itself part of that message. And therefore... Any formulation of the art which is different from any facsimile is itself worthy of resistance. I can print a poem thousands of times and still read it, and I'm just fine. But I can't seem to do so with a painting. That's the argument, if the paint is the meaning of the work. On the other hand, this raises an infamous reproducibility question that comes from postmodern art. Does the number of artificial reproductions make the original more or less valuable? If more people know about it, don't more people wish to learn about it? How many people value Van Gogh's works over, say, Giuseppe Donatus or Camille Pissarro? Might be a reason for that. See, this paradox seems to emerge. The more we are reminded that what we see is imitation, the more we may value the original of the work. The more we experience absence the more we are reminded of a missing presence. Phenomenology There is one more topic we need to talk about, particular to Van Gogh. The selection of his work was not by accident. He's obviously a popular painter, made more popular by Emily in Paris on Netflix. But part of the experience, part of the mythology of Van Gogh is, regrettably, his mental health condition, a very real, very disturbing and tragic circumstance. What do we know about it, really? How did it affect his art? 
How much do we have to know about it in order to understand his art? And most importantly, how do these questions emerge through the immersive experience? One thing that's important to understand is that the immersive experience, at least the one I went to, does not claim to introduce you to his paintings. It claims to introduce you to Van Gogh to work through his struggles as a painter and artist to communicate what he felt. During the painting of the olive trees, for instance, Van Gogh had checked himself into an asylum and stayed there for a year, essentially surrendering to the outside world's efforts to control his condition, something he believed he could manage himself until he ended up mutilating his ear. Distrustful of society in general, let alone its institutions, from schools to churches, this was a big step for him. Unfortunately, it was not altogether successful. He had a few crisis times in the asylum as well, one which appears to have been a suicide attempt. But the time in the defined space there also offered him stability for many weeks at a time. Ultimately, he began to realize that his lifetime might always be articulated by these crises, and so he ultimately left. We need to consider, as these issues might well emerge in his paintings, how an immersive experience might talk about this complex and significant topic. One critic of the experiences claimed that the mental health theme which pervaded the exhibit was a fig leaf for voyeuristic and mealy-mouthed exploitation of the artist's mental collapse. Powerful statement, but it says as much about us as it says about the creators of the exhibit. They are offering us a salacious take on mental health. Oh, peek in, and we want to see, immerse ourselves into that voyeuristic idea. Go back to one of the critics that I mentioned at the beginning of the program, where, as an audience member, you got to sit at a cafe table and experience some of the settings that Van Gogh did. He said, My table had a skull, a bottle, and an absinthe spoon, but they were all fastened down. And that says it all for this experience. You get the bottle, but not the booze. The facts, but not the feeling. What are we getting when we play with the mental health issues here? One writer says, The walls of the asylum close in, and the consistently unpleasant soundtrack briefly redeems itself by drowning out the promised new low of sound effects from a psychiatric hospital. We can only imagine what those were. And still, in other times, an exhibit will step away from the mental health issue in what could only be described as awkwardness. In the exhibit I went to, the self-mutilation of Van Gogh's ear was described as the incident, and nothing more was said. Or his entire mental health experience was summarized as, quote, where he felt blue. Really? This is how we're going to examine and understand a real mental health issue? Fortunately, of course, because this is an immersive and interactive exhibit, audiences seem more concerned with their internet profiles than the art they came to view or understanding Van Gogh's life. The whole program is immaculately Instagrammable, and we don't have to ask those questions for too long, except to say that whatever Van Gogh's experiences were, and however his mental condition affected his art, we are not going to understand it better through immersive Van Gogh. Traditional criticism. So we've talked a bit about some of the major criticisms of the immersive exhibit, and I think those are mostly fair. But I don't know that we benefit from framing our criticisms only in that way. I want to offer us a way to look at immersive Van Gogh, and in fact a whole lot of art, by bringing us back to some very conventional, traditional, and even ancient ideas that, with this perspective, might help us understand what we're experiencing a little better. The first is a concept which is going to become really important to our discussion of ekphrastic art. Ekphrastic art. E-K-P-H-R. You'll see the name in the show notes. Ekphrasis is a technique of literature and rhetoric which goes back to the ancient days of Homer and even before. Homer, in the Iliad, describes Achilles' shield with elaborate description, 
offering images of each scene that the god Hephaestus hammers into it. This, in Homer's time, was Ekphrasis, the vivid description. Essentially what he was doing was trying to take the shield of Achilles, the real thing, for our purposes, the painting, and offer words to replace the physical reality. Words have always done that to a degree, but as a very particular rhetorical or literary technique, ekphrasis is the concerted intentional effort to do so. Virgil, later on, would imitate Homer in the Aeneid, and W.H. Auden in the 20th century would imitate Homer in his poem, The Shield of Achilles. The key difference, though, is that by Auden's time, ekphrasis moved from imitation to response. That is, the goal of ekphrastic works was not merely to replace or represent the physical object, but to interpret, inhabit, confront, and speak to that subject. It wasn't enough that I would simply offer you a description of what the physical object was and say, my words will have to be good enough. You had to be there. Now I was going to do it, and my words would revise and interpret that object. Théophile Gautier talked about it as un transposition d'art, the reproduction through the medium of words of sensuously perceptible objects of art. Art speaks to art. By the 1990s, ekphrastic art was the verbal representation of any visual representation, so the definition started to change. Siglund Brunn expanded it still further in the late 1990s, a representation in one medium of a real or fictitious text composed in another medium. In other words, you didn't have to write a poem to represent Achilles' shield. You could do it in a song, and that would be ekphrastic art. You could do it in pottery. You could do it through dance. Any representation of one medium to another was ekphrastic art. Think of Keats responding to a Grecian urn. Think of Gautier's poem, Symphony in White, which attempts to capture music of a symphony. Think of many musical responses to Whistler's painting, Symphony in White, which has an enormous dialogue of poetry, music, novels, painting, all trying to decide if this woman dressed in white is symbolic or not. Arts depicting art. The last 200 years have found that art responding to art, ekphrastic art, has abounded. This is a very common thing. It's a dialogue of art to art. And as one art is recreated through another medium, we build on the idea. Both artists and audiences seem to desire it. Consider, for instance, Edwin Markham's poem that responds to a painting by Jean-Francois Millet's work, Man with a Hoe. The original painting is of an elder man out in the middle of a field, bent over a gardening hoe. And here's the beginning of the poem. Bowed by the weight of centuries, he leans upon his hoe and gazes on the ground. The emptiness of ages in his face and on his back, the burden of the world. Who loosened and let down this brutal jaw? Whose was the hand that slanted back this brow? Whose breath blew out the light within this brain. At the turn of the 20th century, this poem and the painting along with it spread across the United States and stirred up huge political sentiment for labor in a big way. Whatever Millet expected to do with that painting, Man with a Hoe, Markham's poem, its ekphrastic art, changed it into a political tool that swept the country in debate over labor rights. Is ekphrasis art to art? What about, say, podcast to art? I mentioned this before with Fowls in the Frith. How many podcast discussions on that little poem of the 1200s have occurred? Even here, we must then consider what is art versus a critique of art. This is not about creating a binary, but recognizing that all composition, all responses to art, is critical thought to a matter of degree. Can any essay be art? Any at all? Must all art be artistic in nature, whatever that means? For now, I don't want to quibble on it, though that sounds like a good discussion for another day. 
how much of what we compose in whatever medium is ekphrastic in nature. And put that way, isn't the immersive Van Gogh exhibit a form of ekphrasis? A poetic link. I thought I would offer you an ekphrastic poem written about Van Gogh's work, The Painting Starry Night by Anne Sexton. She starts with an epigraph, a quote from Van Gogh. And that does not keep me from having a terrible need of, shall I say the word, religion. Then I go out at night to paint the stars. A letter to Van Gogh's brother. The town does not exist except where one black-haired tree slips up like a drowned woman into the hot sky. The town is silent. The night boils with eleven stars. Oh, starry, starry night. This is how I want to die. It moves. They're all alive. Even the moon bulges in its orange irons to push children like a god from its eye. The old unseen serpent swallows up the stars. Oh, starry, starry night. This is how I want to die. Into that rushing beast of the night, sucked up by that great dragon, to split from my life with no flag, no belly, no cry. Most of us, when we have seen Van Gogh's painting A Starry Night, don't typically think about a death in this way. How does Anne Sexton's poem shift our thinking about the painting? Ekphrastic art comments back. It repeats and adds to. Van Gogh's intention is now less important because now we cannot understand Anne Sexton's poem without first looking at Van Gogh's and then at what she has said of Van Gogh. Art speaks to art. Modernism. We've talked a little bit about the criticism of Van Gogh's immersive experiences. I've suggested that the fundamental approach to the exhibit might be classified as part of the ekphrastic tradition of art. I want to pursue this further, but first, I think it's worth taking a few moments to talk about how one interprets paintings differently from how one might do a poem or a short story. In art criticism, much is made of the historicist views of the art world, more even than in the literary one. This is partially because there's less to work with in the interpretation of art. How much can one say of a wordless object without ultimately consulting someone else's words about it? We look at the mental health condition of the artist Van Gogh, and we might claim that to experience his work is to give in to turbulence, knowing that we feel assured that we're on the right track because of his life circumstances. Whether that's a fair technique or not, we'll set aside for a few moments, except to say that it is fairly traditional. However, we need not do so. I've argued with poetry that we can find the meaning in the work itself. We don't need to consult the history necessarily to understand a work of fiction or a work of poetry. The same can be said of art. Purists who look at art recognize that it requires a meritable critical method, just like all literature does. Van Gogh chose paint as a way to create indescribable expression and meaning in his work. I wonder if his ideas can be fully conveyed through a different medium or if a different medium distracts from the raw beauty of his work. It's troubling when you look at technology like olive trees swimming across the floor beneath my feet and not be distracted and see the painting disfigured, bent across a column or around a corner of a room and call it one of the most beautiful works of art in history. There is something fundamentally different about that. But if I were to look at a painting on its own, how would I make meaning from it? Fortunately, there are people who have gone before us. I'm going to base a lot of this discussion on the works of Terry Barrett out of Ohio State University, I believe, uh, in the 1990s. He's written many, many books and been interviewed many times. And while there are some people who disagree with his approaches, a lot of what I'm going to talk about here is fairly fundamental to art interpretation. 
Like any artwork, we begin with what we observe, we analyze what we observe for meaning, we interpret that meaning, and then we may, in the end, judge its merits. The same is true of art, but rather than look at rhyme scheme and rhythm or plot development and character dynamics and unity of form and function, art has its own qualities. We might look at its work with line, with its work with shape, light and value of light and shadow, of color and what color does, of texture and pattern, of space, of time and motion. These are all elements of art that within each have numerous techniques to evaluate. In light, for instance, we might look at the source of the light, whether the light is flat or rich, how strong it is, where its contrasts fall, how even it falls upon a scene, the values of light that are given and its hues, where it is emphasized and where it is not, where and how shadows play. In addition to all those elements of art, we may also look at some fundamental principles of design. Some of these are going to sound familiar to poetry and music and other forms of art because there's something fundamental about artistic expression that many cultures have come to expect. Uh, Questions of unity of art or variety within and across art, of balance, whether symmetry is used or asymmetry, of what is emphasized and what is subordinated to create meaning, of scale and proportion, the weight of thing, how objects or figures relate to each other in the setting, of mass and volume, especially in terms of three-dimensional art, of rhythm, of function and setting, of an interior and exterior relationship, the architecture in particular, and I would add as well, installation, where and how the art is placed, can also contribute to meaning. These are fairly basic principles of design, and along with the art elements, become the points for analysis of painting. I want to dig into some of these a little bit and talk about them along with some historical pieces with Van Gogh, but before I do, I need to address a common criticism that looks at painting. People will say, well, you know, we can look at poems and we can analyze poems and interpret poems and what they might mean, but a painting is a painting. A painting is about something that's just a reflection of a tree or a reflection of of a painter's sadness, and there isn't any more to it. Rather than spend this entire episode debating that particular topic, I'm going to go to Terry Barrett again, who offers us principles of interpretation. And he suggests also that we not sell art quite so short as to suggest that there's nothing but representation. The first principle he offers us is that artworks have an aboutness, and that aboutness demands our interpretation. By aboutness, he's talking about this idea that when you look at a painting of a tree, say Van Gogh's olive tree, it is about something. It's more than the tree. If it were a tree and merely a tree, we might as well have a photograph. So this might be a good way to think about it. Where the artwork varies from realism is a good step towards understanding what that aboutness is. And once we understand that principle, then that artwork demands our interpretation. Some degree of interaction with it to say, I think I know what's happening here. That's more than the tree. Now, that interpretation is itself a persuasive argument. Just as I've talked about Kate Chopin and others, I'm offering persuasive arguments, ways of seeing and understanding some of the literature we've looked at so far. Some interpretations are better than others. If it's a good interpretation, it says more about the artwork than it says about the critic. If I come in and I find that every painting is about uh, evil dogs. Obviously, I'm foisting my own ideas onto the artwork. So let's have the interpretation be about the artwork. Well, what about this idea that that we can have feeling about art? I can look at a painting and feel something. Good. We feel something when we look at poetry, too. Feelings are guides to our interpretations. There's a gut instinct here, which I'm going to say, let's go ahead and trust. And just because you feel something a little different from me, that may not necessarily mean a contradiction 
both sets of feelings may lead us to an interpretation or a complex interpretation. There can be different, competing, contradictory interpretations of of artwork. Let's keep in mind, too, that the artwork that's created, like the poem, is not necessarily about what the artist wanted it to be about. The intentional fallacy is at work here. Van Gogh might have wanted to create a particular image or idea, but he may not have succeeded and, in fact, have created something different. For Barrett, here are a couple more principles. All art is in part about the world in which it emerged. In other words, this is where the historicism piece goes in. We cannot, Barrett argues, separate art from the circumstances of its creation. We need to understand those circumstances, whether they're cultural or very specific, to help us understand what produced it. And, here's the ekphrastic idea again, all art is in part about other art. Let's hang on to that idea, because that may become important to Van Gogh as well. No matter what interpretation you find, no single interpretation or no moment of interpretation will be exhaustive. It's not going to be the end-all, be-all. We say the art is over. This is why we keep coming back to paintings. We keep coming back and looking at them over and over again, because they do something new for us, or we discover something new about them every time. With these principles in mind, Barrett has offered 18 different principles of interpretation. Uh, I've provided a list on our website if you'd like to take a look at it. Let's look at some of Van Gogh's art. The Close Analysis I said earlier that we know more about Van Gogh now through sensational stories and the reproduction of his works on coffee mugs. What I'd like to do is look at one particular series of paintings that Van Gogh has done called the Olive Groves. Your podcast app may at this point be showing one of the more famous of this series as the episode art. Otherwise, you can find a link to it in the show notes. Unfortunately, if you can see the image, however, you must also know that it has been altered. It's been compressed to fit Apple's technological pixel limitations. It's been cropped to match your app's output. And it's been made two-dimensional, so you will miss much of what Van Gogh does with his paint that makes him famous, where he literally cascades paint upon paint and creates a thickness, which is itself part of his style. I read a museum brochure about this painting, and it said, This painting explores the intensely personal and spiritual meaning the motif held for the artist, while tracing his shifting motivations and stylistic approaches. Bold and experimental, the Olive Grove series reveals Van Gogh's passionate investigation of the expressive powers of color and line, and his enduring belief in the consoling power of art. Well, that's packed with stuff. Doesn't say a whole lot. Spiritual meaning, very personal, bold and experimental, lots of color, and the consoling power of art. Frankly, I look at this painting and I don't understand how that description helps. I can't easily apply it to this painting called the Olive Grove. So I want to dig in a little further to this painting and see what we can discover. First, uh, the Olive Grove painting that you see is one of 15 paintings done between 1889 and 1890, while Van Gogh stayed voluntarily at an asylum in Provence, France. This was fairly soon after he had mutilated his own ear. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about that story. You can read it in a lot of places. I just want to say it was a moment of crisis for him. And so he decided voluntarily to try a different method of managing his mental health. Many people want to see the violent swirls of color in Van Gogh's paintings as representing his anguished mental state. I don't know that that's altogether likely. It was between his paintings where he suffered most. The act of painting itself, the work of it, often gave him great stability and joy. His intentions are made clear, overall, in letters he wrote to his brother. He saw in the olive trees outside of the asylum where he was staying, profound and spiritual meaning, of the cycle of human lives and of our relationship to that natural or holy cycle. He found that, quote, The rustle of the olive grove has something very secret in it, and immensely old, It is too beautiful for us to dare to paint it or to be able to imagine it. He considered painting Christ in one or more of those scenes, thinking of the gardens of Gethsemane. 
but he chose not to, imagining that the shapes of the trees themselves would suggest it. Imagine the trees, says critic Sky Jathani as, quote, writhing in pain, stretching out to the infinity of God. That paradox in paint, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Could be. Let's go on, though. The image is dominated by the swelling rhythm of the earth, swirling clouds, undulating mountain. Long, very dynamic lines create these shapes and establish rhythm to them, it seems. The twisted olive trees seem to struggle to maintain their hold in the landscape. The solid blue-gray sky appears serene, but impenetrable. The dark purple hills hem in the silver-green orchard and close off the horizon. The strangely full clouds, fluid. They shed some pale yellow light on the scene below. Most of Van Gogh's blues were meant to indicate the holy, the divine, along with the gold that often met them. His color use was rarely singular, but broken. That is, several colors would interrupt one another to show movement, to show light, to show emotion. Olive trees, of course, archetypally, have long been potent symbols for humankind. The ancient Greeks, Romans, Hebrews saw them as a tree of life, a physical embodiment of resilience, of regeneration, peace, abundance. In the Old Testament, the tree appears in the Garden of Eden and in Canaan. And the olive trees of Gethsemane, uh, the site of Christ's agony in the garden, are some of the oldest in the world. For the highly spiritual Van Gogh, the olive groves merged his unique breed of religious thought and his deep reference for nature. In this state, he looked at the tree and thought, this is a holy place, and then represented that in paint. But that's not all. Locally, the olive tree was important as well. Van Gogh was familiar with a local literary group, the Filebres, and they had envisioned a regional renaissance in Provence based on old values and landed order, tradition. For them, olive and cypress were rich symbols as much as the songs of the troubadours, the poems in Provençal, the classical ruins that were in the area. The olive tree was part of a search for order, for durable meaning for constancy. It's not a big reach to suggest that this was the very thing that Van Gogh came to the region to discover himself. Moreover, these images of the land were, by implication, against the decadence of the cities. He is in a rural place, in the quiet of nature, and so we must think about what he discovers there in contrast to an urban environment. With painter Paul Gauguin, they had discussed finding a painting that would give consolation without a return to the romantic or to religious ideas. They were looking for a painting that would use imagery of a pure and more serene nature than could be found in the decadence of Paris and the big cities. Now, Van Gogh and Gauguin argued over how to do that and to what degree it was possible. For Van Gogh, he wanted to err ultimately on the side of nature and not be overly religious in the works that he did, even while he struggled with those questions. The artist's images from St. Remy, this, this asylum, were subject to the tensions fundamental to his art. Van Gogh found a tension between description and expression, between the desire to portray the physical world as he understood it, and to evoke a personal, spiritual symbolism. He was in a dialogue with nature a dialogue with the scenes, attempting to find the meaning in them. One critic looking at the series described it this way. She said, The fact that the landscape is slipping away, it slips down to the right, you feel like you're almost losing control. One of the most striking things is the different layers of the paint. You've got these very thick impasto areas where the paint stands up on the surface. So he's quite experimental in his approach. He's worked the top of the painting a great deal, so this parts much more spontaneous. And then you can see this very thick layering up at the top where he's trying to work out the relationship between the trees and the sky in the background. Now our critic here looks at the thickness of the painting, something that you can't see on your podcast app, nor could we see it at Immersive Van Gogh. Let's go further. 
We can look, too, at the paintings in contrast to his earlier famous work, Starry Night, which he had already completed. Now, we know about Starry Night that it was a fictitious place. It didn't really exist. It worked from memory more than anything else, and it was much more abstracted with its cypress trees than what Van Gogh was doing here in Provence. It was clear Van Gogh was thinking of it when he began this. He moved from a cypress tree to olive trees. He was not in Arles anymore, but in Provence, not merely consoling through an abstracted nature, but a question in a more concrete nature that was before him. Remember what he had said, when I have the terrible need of, dare I say the word, religion, I go outside at night to paint. So, I've offered you a lot of pieces of an olive tree puzzle. Which of these is the accurate view of the paintings? Is it the cycle of nature that we see through the 15 paintings across the seasons? Is it religious consolation, where he finds peace and comfort in the ancient wisdom of these trees? Or is it the torment that we find in the limbs as they bow and writhe? Is it the divine in nature? Is it an aesthetic treatment of texture, a cementing of provincial tradition, a relief to his mental health crises, or a representation of them? Are the paintings an act of spontaneity or of willful deliberation? Are these experiments in concrete work or abstraction? a response to his dialogues with Gauguin? Or has he forgotten his old friend? An homage to rural life over that of the city? A search for stability in his life, or just a search for style? We've been here before, haven't we? Yes. Yes, and. Yes, that too, and. Can we really believe that any of these influences were not present upon the intensity of his creative work, knowing what we do about his thinking, his other works, his own influences? But we can absolutely say this. Even in this short discussion of the olive trees, this is more than we would receive from a museum brochure on the paintings, and certainly more than we ever received from immersive Van Gogh. However, even if that were true, my guess is that most of the people listening to this interpretation were at least partially drawn to the discussion by their familiarity with the exhibition. So, what has immersive Van Gogh accomplished? Bakhtin's Way We've talked about the criticisms, we've talked a little bit about understanding and reading paintings, It's time to turn to this final question. Is Immersive Van Gogh the path for the future, for education, a place where we have a new genre of art emerging? First, I want to consider the mission or purpose of the Van Gogh experience that I walked through. It attempted to draw a parallel between painting and Van Gogh's ability to communicate with it, and that exhibits ability to communicate Van Gogh. Its suggestion was that all the struggles that Van Gogh had to communicate his ideas of spiritual frustration, of nature and the cycles of life, was equivalent to the exhibit's ability to communicate Van Gogh through technology. I'm not going to judge the parallel there and whether it's valid or not. I am going to suggest that it does raise an interesting dynamic of art that we've talked a little bit about before. I want to capture in this way. There is a dialogue, a dialectic, which occurs between verbal art and the object described. Ekphrastic art demands this dialogue, that when we utter art, when we create art, whether it's painting, poetry, dance, we are in a dialectic with the art and the object that it looks at, that it points to, that it discusses. And then, as observers, readers, we ourselves are also in a dialogue with the art. There is an exchange between the art, the object, and the audience. Ekphrastic art demands the dialogue. Is this relationship between art and object replacement? Or is it encounter? Or is it response? How we characterize the dialogue is important to our understanding of immersive Van Gogh. 
If we imagine that it is merely replacement, that immersive Van Gogh is going to take over all Van Gogh art and will never look at Van Gogh art again, I understand the criticisms. We have a concern because we're missing or we make absent the object that immersive Van Gogh has replaced. Facsimile technology replaces the original. But if it's an encounter with Van Gogh, then it's nothing more than a very fancy critic offering interpretations of their own. Another piece of art, or at least a carnival ride, of that encounter with art. If it's a critical response to the art, then we kind of imagine that it's perhaps more thoughtful. And whether it's an encounter or a response has more to do with the intention or the interpretation of the immersive experience than it does with Van Gogh at all. As we work through ekphrastic art as a concept, there is a stage that some psychologists describe as ekphrastic fear. Now, there's a fancy term, I'll bet you, bet you've never used before. Ekphrastic fear. This is the moment of resistance that occurs when we sense that the difference between the verbal and the visual representation might collapse, and that this desire of ekphrasis might be realized literally and actually. That's a fancy definition. Here's a simpler definition of it. It is the fear that the ekphrastic art will actually replace the object that it represents. That's a fair anxiety. What is the original? What is the real? I would suggest, though, that it also raises the larger question of original, which we've already discussed. Ekphrastic fear is not created by the ekphrastic art. Merely, it is created by the audience's forgetfulness of an original, the loss of engagement with that original. Once we, the readers, realize that art is ever in dialogue with other art, we seek it. We look for the discussion, the exploration, which occurs between these works. Seeing immersive Van Gogh was a fun experience for me, but it didn't replace Van Gogh. It did cause me to ask questions of Van Gogh. Now you may say, well, Steve, that's fine. That's you, though. That's what you're doing. Most people aren't doing that. True, maybe not, but now most people have an opportunity to. And since more people have seen immersive Van Gogh in these last couple of years than actually saw a real Van Gogh painting, we can at least hope that an opportunity, a door has opened where that ekphrastic moment has given them an opportunity to encounter and respond. A new way back. Corey Ross, who is one of the immersive Van Gogh producers, described his experience as a new genre. It's not specifically an art exhibition, as you would experience it in a museum with a curatorial support that a museum would have, but as a brand new genre of art. It's an interesting idea, and it may be true. Whatever you believe about it, though, the question of how Van Gogh is produced, its installation where and how it is found and in what state also creates part of the meaning. Sometimes installation is historically cemented and creates its own meanings and rituals. I've already spoken, for instance, about the installation of books. The poem is the poem. The novel is the novel. The short story is the short story. But we installed it over the course of the last several hundred years on a technological form called books. What that technology did was create a certain habitude and emotional response to the technology and change to some degree the way we talk about it. Stories became physical. There was something you could grab onto and hang onto versus the oral culture of the past. It created a whole discussion of high and low status, those who had books and could read books and would experience certain kinds of books, and those, of course, who were illiterate or only read pop romances. It created entire economies of literature and of the art of literature. 
And so the publishing industry and now the intellectual property industry, which produces films and TV streaming, is all about packaging the intellectual property of books. It creates an intimacy where I can curl up with a book and immerse myself in a story versus a story which was performed by a troubadour or a bard in a public setting. It creates an ownership idea that this is my book and then we can debate whether or not we should write in the books or not. So much of our attitude about literature is not built to the literature, but to the technology of the literature, that we forget when we look and judge something like Immersive Van Gogh, that it's simply a different cultural meaning and cultural ritual inherent in its technological installation. If part of a painting's meaning is in its paint, and how that paint is used, part of the meaning of immersive Van Gogh is in its projection techniques, in its interactivity, in the social media elements of it. And in this sense, Corey Ross, that new genre guy, may be right. We're looking at a new technological form, a new genre built in that technological form, that will come complete with its own methods and epistemologies its own ways to produce meaning. Remember, too, that installation, whether it's installment of a poem in a book or installment of a painting in a museum, is often not by the design or choice of the artist. This is often done after their death. Where would a short story appear next to who else's short story? In what kind of artwork? In what kind of classroom? This all changes the meaning of the work as well. Like a translator, like a film director, like a VR creator, the new creation itself is instrumental to the meaning. Whether Peter Jackson is redoing Lord of the Rings or Corey Ross is redoing Van Gogh, it moves through the same creative process that all art goes through. Conception, draft, a final version, a reincarnation and revision. Funny, one of the big complaints that many people had about the immersive Van Gogh experience that they met was that it didn't match the exhibit that they saw in the Netflix streaming show Emily in Paris. Yes, even though the immersive Van Gogh experiences have been around since 2004, 2005 or so, Emily in Paris last year, a very bad streaming show, had a two-minute scene where she walks through an electro-pop club music, kind of Vivaldi with a bass line, version of Immersive Van Gogh. And suddenly, the experience took off. Millions of dollars are being invested by multiple companies in order to make millions more. And this is the beginning of something. It's not the end of it. And that's kind of strange. For those people who complained about their immersive experience, it's like they thought that the Emily in Paris show was the original version of Immersive Van Gogh, and they suddenly wanted that experience. They wanted the original. Never mind that the original Van Gogh happened back in the 1890s when he was painting his works. In the Classroom So what happens to a classroom teachers when instruction has to compete with this. 35 years ago, this was the debate in schools, this Sesame Street effect. How do we as teachers make lessons entertaining? Now, this has since evolved to strategies for motivation, even now a concept resisted by stalwart pedagogical conservatives. Now the kids are learning about stuff through VR, mad entertainment, immersive metaverses, and the response of many schools is to demand that students put their phones away because they understand that competition is winning. This is not about competition. This is about a changing understanding of literacy and a changing understanding of how we produce meaning. And schools must decide how they will respond to it. Let's look at this a few ways through the Sesame Street effect. It means the TV show Sesame Street, way back from the 1960s and the impact it had 
on how kids learn. Suddenly there were Muppets and Puppets and Big Bird and people talking in trash cans on New York City streets and learning to count and read. Understand that education costs per child in the United States, Head Start in particular for pre-K kids, is around $8,000 a year. That's less than we spend each year on prisoners, but let's let that pass. The cost per child for Sesame Street is around $5 per child. Get your head around that. Sesame Street is therefore essentially the first MOOC, the first massive open online course, according to the National Bureau of Economic Research. Sesame Street is diverse, open, educational, accessible. Now, I'm not saying at all that Sesame Street could replace schools or that it could replace a good and attentive teacher. Human interaction is still really significant. MOOCs and the Khan Academy have shown their limits, but also they've shown their ability to push for change. They're great supplements for decent education. And with over 1,000 studies out there on Sesame Street, we can see the short and long-term effects of entertaining educational programming. Teachers stopped asking about entertainment a while ago. We've changed the term to motivation, but it's the same thing. How do we find new ways to create meaning which are meaningful for the audience? I need not say, but I will, that Facebook's metaverse programming, whatever it turns out to be, is right around the corner. It is as inevitable as these programs And while the metaverse may be just around the corner, the meta-hucksters for educational professional development are already among us, selling techniques at top dollar to unsuspecting instructors and students and parents. So the question really is, what are you going to do about it? Change. If schools and teachers do not provide content in entertaining and dynamic ways, if they don't change the installation of their content, then they must help students learn to navigate and think about that content and that installation. There is nothing else so important. The very idea of reading of texts is changing before our eyes, and it's based upon this technological shift. You can love immersive Van Gogh or you can hate it, but we cannot deny where the production of meaning is going. A personal reflection. In these last episodes, from Kate Chopin to medieval poetry, from Chimamanda Adichie to digital Van Gogh, We've already traveled widely across authors and genres, but we found ourselves settled around a few key questions, it seems. It's certainly possible that people could attend an immersive Van Gogh experience and take nothing more from it than they would a fireworks display or narcissistic Instagram selfie. Wow, that's so cool. But this is exactly as true of these shows as it might be from a short story or ancient poem. True, the dazzle of digital may be distracting right now, but it will soon enough be replaced by something else, evolved into something more distractive or more reflective. We're still in beta mode for immersive experiences like this, though they are a bit different from the animatronic papier-mâché dinosaurs that were shaken at me in my youth. No, the question of what we do with texts, how we read them, is always on us, always our own. And that reading might compel a reflection, an interaction, a dialogic response of resistance or acceptance, or something more complex. But hopefully, it also helps us challenge the bases for any objections we might have. For me, I'm concerned about how the profit-making of digital Van Gogh displaces other art, other texts, from our attention. I'm equally concerned with questions of representation, who's selected for such attention, how the subjects of that attention are treated and why. For instance, the topic of mental health. But notice how every one of these questions can be applied equally to Chopin and Adichie, where they might well have been overlooked as women writers. 
how they are packaged and presented today as objects of political or social movements, or how our questions of authorship and original source are challenged by the technology of installation, how Homer or our Fowls and the Frith poet was part of a very different understanding of authority, more and more, it seems, social and cultural forces move us to places of false consciousness, of non-reflection. And it has become more and more challenging for educational institutions to keep up, to do much more than rush through traditional curriculum and deliver content. Digital Van Gogh is an open door to ekphrastic fear, but also ekphrastic response. Isn't it cool that we can use this word now? We choose what and how to respond. And this is the kind of map we have ahead of us. We're not halfway yet through our first season. Keep coming back and dig around our website for more. In the meantime, go read something. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and find us along with so many supplements, bonus episodes, and other surprises at waywardstudio.com. That's waywardstudio, two S's in the middle, dot com. Thanks for listening. Music for the Waywards podcast is by Randon Miles. Chapter headings by Natalie Harrison and Sarah Skaleski. The Waywards podcast is a production of Waywards Studio. Find us at waywardsstudio.com.